So this month, we're studying a series of Jesus' parables from Matthew's Gospel, and they're all parables that challenge us to reflect on where we stand in relation to Jesus' kingdom. Jesus often used to uh, teach in parables. There are uh, 37 different parables uh, in the Synoptic Gospels. That's uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I don't know whether you've ever noticed that John's Gospel doesn't include any of Jesus' parables. John had a very different way of uh, writing. Uh, We'll look at that another time. Uh, But why did Jesus teach in parables? Well, that is a question that his disciples asked him directly. And here's how he answered. He said, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You'll be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. What Jesus is saying is that some people don't want to know God. Uh, They're not spiritually hungry. When they hear one of Jesus's parables, it just bounces off them. Uh, They can't be bothered to work out what it means or how it applies to their life. Uh, But there are those who are desperate to learn and to understand and to know God better. And when such people hear one of Jesus' parables, uh, they will uh, strive to understand what it means to uh, work out how it applies to their lives. For the first group of people, any understanding that they have will disappear, wither away to nothing. For the second group, that little bit of faith and knowledge that they have will increase along with the depth of their relationship with God. Last week's parable, the parable of the sower, asked us to reflect on how we have responded to Jesus and his kingdom message. This week's parable, the parable of the weeds, asks us to reflect on a different question. And the question is this. When all is said and done, and there is no time left to make decisions... Where will I stand? When all is said and done and there is no time left to make decisions, where will I stand? But before we go uh, any further, I want to point out that this parable is not, as is often taught, simply about the church. Jesus did not tell this parable to teach us that true and false believers will coexist in the church until final judgment. That's a reality, but that is not what this parable is about. Firstly, because when Jesus told this parable, the the problem of nominal Christianity didn't really exist. In fact, the the church uh, didn't, in a sense, exist. Secondly, if we look at verse 38, we see that the field in the parable is, in fact, the world. So the setting for this parable is not the church, but the whole world. Uh, Jesus told this parable to a huge crowd, and then he explained it in private to his disciples. We have the parable and we have explanation. So let's look at that. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weed among the wheat and went away. So the one who sowed the seed is the son of man. In other words, the seed is Jesus's teaching 
about the kingdom of heaven. Matthew tends to use the term kingdom of heaven, whilst in uh, Mark and Luke's gospels, they have Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. But those terms are synonymous. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God mean exactly the same thing. The kingdom of heaven is where Jesus is king. So how do we come to belong to this kingdom? Well, we belong to the kingdom when Jesus is king of our lives. In other words, when uh, we have surrendered our lives to Jesus. Putting our hope and trust in Jesus is the only surefire way of entering the kingdom. Uh, Some might say, well, what about adherence to other faiths and religions? Well, ultimately, God is a judge and he is a loving and a just judge. And we can be sure and certain of that. But we do not know of any other way besides Jesus to enter his kingdom. But once we found Jesus, why would we be interested in looking anywhere else? Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer used the analogy of a gold mine. He said, if we were to hear and believe that a gold mine had been found that would provide enough gold for all people of all time, we would certainly be less interested in the question of whether perhaps gold might also be found somewhere else. Whether or not gold can be found elsewhere is irrelevant. There is more than enough here. In other words, Jesus is sufficient. So shouldn't we just bring the good news to those who are desperately looking for gold mines in other places? Those who respond positively to Jesus' message about the kingdom are the crop that comes from the good seed. Unfortunately, it's not just good seed that are growing in the man's field because an enemy has come and sowed uh, weed amongst the wheat. And actually, it's not hard to imagine someone doing this. People do carry out uh, incredibly vindictive and spiteful acts. I remember in the village where I grew up, some people came in the night and poured creosote all over the golf course uh, because they'd had a disagreement with the owners. And no doubt the equivalent kind of thing uh, would have happened in the ancient world. Uh, And there is a devil who is in opposition to God, who wants to sabotage what God is doing in this world. And we're not talking about a little red man with horns, a tail, and a pitchfork. That image is unbiblical. But we are talking about a personal agent of evil. Jesus clearly believes in the devil. He says the weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. Jesus is not speaking in some kind of code. He is explaining this parable in plain, uh, unambiguous language. Jesus sows truth, the devil sows lies. Uh, Jesus said the devil is a liar and the father of lies. Those who choose to believe the devil's lies are the weeds uh, growing up alongside the wheat. Not everybody in God's world, in the field, will respond positively to Jesus and his kingdom message. So this enemy, the devil, has sown uh, weeds among the wheat and both sprout up at the same time. And the, the owner's servants want to know if they should go and pull up all the weeds. And the owner says this, he says, no, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. To appreciate this parable fully, we need a little bit more information about the weeds. And we can be pretty sure that the weeds that Jesus uh, was talking about is uh, darnel or lolium temelentum. And the thing is with darnel is it looks very much like wheat until the ears appear. 
in fact, it's so similar in appearance, it's often known as false wheat. Darnell is poisonous, and the Romans actually had laws against planting this stuff. Uh, so perhaps it was that people were maliciously uh, planting it in rivals' fields. That's speculation, but it certainly ties in uh, with the para- uh, parable. And what's even more interesting is that the roots of Darnell uh, intertwine with the uh, roots of the wheat. And so if you tried to pull up the Darnell, you would almost certainly pull up the wheat along with it. And this gives us a very good indication of the prevalence and pervasiveness of sin in our world. And it shows us that the problem of evil cannot be dealt with by somehow identifying all the evil people and uprooting them. Firstly, because the wheat and the weeds look so alike. If we get into the business of trying to work out uh, who's wheat and who's weeds, who belongs to the kingdom and who doesn't, then we'll frequently get it wrong. We'll be continually making errors. Jesus said, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't make moral judgments. Of course, we can say that loving our neighbor is right and murder is wrong. But we cannot look at a murderer and presume to know their standing before God on the day of judgment. But in the face of this parable, in spite of this parable, the church has at various times and in various places tried to root out infidels and heretics in a literal physical sense. Uh, Even the disciples tried to do it. Remember when Jesus approached that Samaritan village and they refused to welcome him. And uh, two of his disciples, James and John, looked at Jesus and they said, Lord, shall we call down fire from heaven and destroy them? They wanted to press the smite button. Needless to say, Jesus didn't want them to do that. Uh, Jesus rebuked them. The, um, the, the, The Spanish Inquisition is a prime example of a group of people saying, we belong to Christ and they belong to Satan. Let us destroy them. At its height, the Inquisition ordered Jews and Muslims to convert to Catholicism or leave Spain. 150,000 people were charged with crimes by the Inquisition. And uh, records are incomplete, but it is believed that three to 5,000 people were executed. Look how damaging that's been to the church. Even now, more than 500 years after it all started, people still cite the Spanish Inquisition as an objection to the Christian faith. How many people's faith has been uprooted by this hideous episode that flies in the face of Jesus' clear teaching? It is not for us as Christians to uproot or do away with people that we perceive as evil. That kind of ethos leads to the most horrendous injustices. You might be thinking, okay, well, that's fair enough, but we're not going around uh, trying to kill evil people. So how is this relevant to us? Well, it's relevant because there are plenty of Christians who would endorse, support, and condone the death penalty. And I don't think that it's pushing this parable too far to argue that it forbids capital punishment. Of course, I'm not saying that crime should go unpunished or that we should tolerate heresy, that is, false teaching within the church. We need a criminal justice system, and we absolutely should uh, root out heresy, not uh, by burning heretics, as have been done in the past, but by exposing heresy and refusing to accept it. Remember, this parable is uh, about the world, not the church. Uh, The church should root out heresy, 
but it should do so in a peaceful way and in a spirit of love and compassion and generosity. What we're saying is that God is the ultimate judge. Matters of life and death rest in his hands and not in ours. Harvest time is coming when the wheat and the weeds will be separated. History is moving towards a climax where Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. This is what Jesus said about the harvest. He said, the harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin, and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun, in the kingdom of their father. Now, a lot of people today find this teaching unpalatable, but there is no reason to think that Jesus didn't say it. And if we're honest, there is only one way of interpreting this. God will judge between those who belong to his kingdom and those who do not. The same fate does not await everyone. Jesus presents us with two alternatives. And yes, it is extremely sobering. But God is a judge, not us. Um, we all have a tendency to, to want to categorize people into goodies and baddies. Whenever I'm watching a film with Caleb, he always wants to know who are the goodies and who are the baddies. And it's normally pretty obvious. Uh, but in reality, it is nowhere near so straightforward. The fact is, we are all, we are all contaminated by sin. Imagine you're strolling along the beach with a friend eating a chocolate ice cream. And a seagull flies over and drops an extra treat in your Sunday. And your friend is really helpful, and they start scooping it out with a spoon. And then they say, uh, it's okay, I've got most of it. I've got most of it. There's still no way you're going to eat that Sunday, is there? It doesn't matter whether there's a lot or a little, you're not going to eat it, because it has been contaminated. And it's no good us saying, well, I've done a few bad things, but, you know, nothing very serious. I'm certainly not a bad person. You see, we can't be a little bit sinful. We're either sinful or we're not. And the reality is that we are all sinful. Sin and selfishness have polluted, have contaminated our hearts. The wheat and the weeds exist together. Good and evil are side by side. But that is even the case, uh, in a sense, within our own beings. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 talks about the battle between good and evil going on inside of him. He, he finds himself doing the things that he hates. And the good that he would like to do, that he knows he ought to do, well, he fails to do that. And he finishes by saying, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Those who are wheat, those who belong to the kingdom, are so not because they're goodies, but because Jesus has paid the penalty for their sin. When we surrender our lives to Jesus, we are accepting the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Our sins are cancelled out. Uh, that doesn't mean we become perfect. In fact, we're not even good. Isaiah 64, 6 says, Our righteous acts, that is the, the best of what we do, our righteous acts are like filthy rags. But we will be made perfect after the harvest. However, 
God will not make us perfect against our will. And this is really important. God will not make us perfect against our will. That is why the wheat and the weeds will not share the same fate. There are people who will consistently and permanently refuse and reject God. It's desperately sad that that would be the case, uh, but that is. You see, God can't remove evil from his creation, from this world, in the way that you might remove a bruise from an otherwise good apple. Evil has so thoroughly infiltrated this world that good and evil are permitted to remain side by side until the final harvest, till the final judgment. But it's this idea of judgment that people struggle with. And it's interesting, isn't it, how atheists will often say things like, if there's a good and loving God, why does he allow so much evil in the world? And then in the next breath, they'll point out that in their view, the God of the Bible is mean and capricious and just wants to judge everyone. But that's inconsistent. Evil is a reality, it's true. But surely judgment is what we would expect from a good and loving God. Wouldn't we expect God to put an end to evil? Isn't that the hope we have uh, in Jesus who come and uh, perfect creation, do away with evil altogether? But I think where people really struggle is with Jesus' description of hell. Uh, The idea of people being thrown into a blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. People really struggle with that, and I can understand why. But I think we can get too caught up on a particular concept of hell. Uh, the, the The imagery that's being used to describe hell is not necessarily a literal description of reality. Hell is what happens when human beings refuse to worship the God in whose image they've been created. In other words, when a person doesn't want to fulfill the purpose for which they've been made. We are human. The thing that makes us human is the fact that we are made in God's image and we're made to have a relationship with God. That is what makes us human. If we don't want to do that, then we are, in N.T. Wright's words, colluding with our own progressive dehumanization. This is so shocking and appalling that it's hardly surprising that such confronting language is used to describe it. It's hard for us to imagine anything worse than burning in hell forever. But I think what's being described actually is far far sadder and more awful. If we turn away from God, our humanity begins to shrivel up. If we permanently reject God, our humanity shrivels up completely. It's like when someone gets hooked on heroin or crystal meth. Over time, you can see their humanity deteriorate in a very real and alarming physical way. It's almost as if the light of God's image gets duller and duller. But while they have life... They remain God's image bearers, no matter how faint that image is. And so they are worthy of our love and our compassion. When a person refuses to worship God, their humanity is progressively degraded in a very real spiritual way. So you imagine the the drug addict who deteriorates in a very obvious uh, physical way. 
when we refuse to worship God, it might not be so externally obvious, but our humanity is deteriorating in a very real spiritual way. Now, whether ultimately that means uh, that such a person spends eternity in a real physical place called hell, or whether it means that uh, they actually cease to exist, is open to debate. But to be honest, the nature of hell is a bit of a red herring. The important thing to understand is that rejecting the God of creation has serious consequences. But let us be clear, on the day of judgment, if someone finds themselves to be a weed, it is because they have willfully rejected God, not the other way around. Uh, 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 says, God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. The choices we make really do matter. So the question is not who's good and who's evil, who's wheat and who's weeds, who belongs to the kingdom and who doesn't. The question that this parable evokes in its hearers is when all is said and done and there is no time left to make decisions, where will I stand? Let's finish by focusing on what God wants for us rather than what we could bring upon ourselves by willfully rejecting God. Verse 43 says this, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. God wants a relationship with every single person. He wants a relationship with you and with me. He wants to forgive us our sins. He wants to bestow Jesus' righteousness upon us. He wants us to shine like the sun in his kingdom forever and ever. I'm not sure why anyone wouldn't want that for themselves. Let's continue to embrace the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's live it out. Let's make Jesus king of our lives and let's proclaim this good news uh, to the world. Remembering that in this life, the weeds can still become wheat. Such is the transforming power of God's Holy Spirit. We worship a God who wants to change people's lives and can completely change people's lives and character and their eternal destiny if people are willing to turn to him. So this is not just hope for us within this church. This is hope for the whole of humankind. And as a church, it is our job to get that message out into the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that uh, this, this parable, this teaching from your son, Jesus Christ, is, is not an easy one for us to wrestle with. And it, it, it is sobering. But in all this, we recognize that you are God of love. You are a just God. And you want the best for each one of us. And we pray that we will open our hearts and lives to you in every way. And we, will pr- we pray that we'll lead others to you, to this gold mine that can never be used up. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we will see the urgency of evangelism, the urgency of pointing a world that is in rebellion against you, pointing them, the world back to you. Father, we recognize the sin in our own life. We recognize that we can only be harvested as wheat because of what Jesus has done for us and not what we've done for ourselves. 
And we thank you that you are a gracious and loving God who does everything possible to draw people back uh, to you. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.